All right. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sokka's Is That So? I have a very special guest on today's episode. I'm speaking to Rachel Tenbrink. And if you haven't heard of her, you will at some point because uh, she's making waves in the industry. So Rachel is a former Y Combinator founder turned venture capitalist and is currently the GP at Red Bike Capital. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you. Excited to be here. Absolutely. Well, why don't we dive straight into the current state of the venture capital market? Eventually, you will get into your background, but uh, what do you current currently think or what's your assessment of the venture capital space as of 2022 or should, should I say towards the end of 2022? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's a year of transition and quite tumultuous, and it really depends on what stage you're investing in. I think what we're seeing is obviously there was a huge pullback uh, at the beginning of the year. Uh, if you look at the macro environment and what's going on in the public markets, it's obviously very hard to you know divorce that from what's happening in venture, particularly later stage venture. And so you know you're looking at an IPO market that has essentially frozen. Um, you're looking at huge cuts in valuation, particularly at the later stage. Um, having said all that, I also think that, you know, in these challenging times, and I don't know if we're going to have a recession or not, you know, my my indications say yes. Uh, but in these difficult times is when great businesses are built and great investments are done. And so what I see is that with all of that pullback, there was a lot of, uh, you know, euphoria in the venture capital markets, particularly in the last couple of years. And this scaling back, it's actually very healthy for the market. I think uh, what we're seeing is, you know, valuations that are a little bit more sane, a little bit more in line with exit potential. Um, particularly, as I said, you know, I think there's a big haircut in the later stage, but even in the earlier sort of C to A stage, which is where we invest, there's definitely, you know, valuations are more sane. But I think also very importantly, you know, companies have, you know, found investors have taken the time to really do their due diligence to really get to know founders. And that's exactly how we want to operate. And so when you don't have this, well, are you in or are you out? by Monday um, mentality, and, and you actually have time to meet founders, make the right investment decisions, I think you'll have very good outcomes. Um, so it's it's turbulent. I don't think it's, you know, it was a great time to be a founder a couple of years ago. Now it's probably a really good time to be an investor. <laughs> Absolutely. And in terms of the venture capital space, it's hard to delineate between if there has been a paradigm shift after the pandemic and now everything is just more tech enabled, there's more opportunity, or we were kind of in a bubble, so to speak, the euphoria that you mentioned, how, have you delineated or how do you kind of balance the two between a structural shift in the economy and the opportunities in the VC space versus sort of a temporary blip based on money printing or the market euphoria? How do you delineate those two? Well, I think that there that's it's a really interesting question because I think it you have to look at it sort of category by category. I think there are some undeniable shifts. Work from home is here to stay. Now, there's a lot of nuance to that statement, right? Because I don't think that 
people will only work at home. I think hybrid is the future. And so what does that mean in terms of tech opportunities and, and venture opportunities? Um, I think when you look at at home workouts and what's going on with Peloton, well, it turns out people actually like to work out with other people. But uh, undeniably, we all learned how to work at home. And I'm a working mom. I work from home most of the time. I, I consider it a treat to go to the gym, right? So I think that um, the pandemic sort of pushed technology forward, but I think it's not in absolute. And it's, you know, I think you still have to pay a lot of attention to what are the real sort of blips versus shifts in consumer behavior, business behavior, commerce behavior. Um, so it's sort of a mixed environment. And I think the devil's in the details. And what's your kind of mentality going into this supposed downturn? Because when you hear famous quotes like Warren Buffett and others, they say, be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. So I'm thinking if everyone's fearful or investors are fearful going into this downturn, maybe that's a great opportunity to find some companies that wouldn't otherwise get funded. So what's kind of like your mode or motif or roadmap going into a downturn in terms of how you invest or what you're looking at and kind of your mindset? Well, I don't think it's shifted very much in that we were always very fundamentals driven and we were always very valuation driven and valuation sensitive. So for us as a fund, we have something we call the red box Ooh. and we have sort of six metrics that we look at um, in terms of every investment that we do. And it really, you know, we're really trying to be very, we were always very disciplined. And so we continue to be that you know, thinking about team, thinking about target market and, you know, is it a real pain point? Is it a need versus a want? And I think particularly whether it's B2B or B2C, when you're looking at the economic environment, and I do believe there will be a tightening of purse strings, although we haven't seen it yet, uh, that's going to affect that. Then we think about traction. We think about exit potential. And finally, we think a lot about value add, because I think that for us, what's important in how we think about it is, are we investing in categories that we actually have deep knowledge and expertise? Can we actually add value to these companies? Can we help them succeed? And so um, when you look at the categories that we invest in, we invest in fintech, we invest in e-commerce, SaaS, and marketplaces, and health and wellness. These are all categories that myself and my partner, Herman, have very deep expertise in. Yeah, I think it's kind of always best to choose a particular area so that you have an advantage as opposed to being too generalized and then, you know, kind of scatterbrained approaches don't typically work in the past. But I'm curious about your aha moment, sort of, you know, when the light bulb first went off for you that, you know what, I kind of want to do venture capital. What kind of led you uh, to want to be in this space and what kind of was the trigger that made you want to be a venture capitalist? Well, I, I can tell you a little bit about my background and how I sort of... Um, ended up here uh, because, you know, I'm a big believer that life is cumulative and uh, very much feel like venture capital is exactly where I need to be right now. It's what I was put on earth to do, but it's a lot because of my prior experiences. So Latina, originally from Costa Rica, my parents are Cuban and we can talk all about my background, uh, but started my career at Gillette, spent 15 years building billion dollar brands at Estee Lauder, L'Oreal, Elizabeth Arden, did my MBA at Columbia along the way. Um, but then in 2014, met my co-founders and we started a company called Setbird, which is a subscription service for fragrances uh, backed by Y Combinator. 
we raised 29 million in venture capital, which by the way, makes me one of 90 Latinas that's ever raised over a million dollars. Wow. We can talk about that too. (laughs) Uh, With Sedbird, as one of the four founders, I led all of growth and revenue. So on the growth side, uh, really any acquisition strategy, brand, uh, we can talk about all of it. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. Uh, we scaled it to about half a million active monthly subscribers. And then on the revenue side was the B2B partnership. So for us, it was very impactful in our bottom line and our margins if we could have direct partnerships with brands. So did partnerships with everybody from Macy's to Cody to Glossier. Um, companies on track to do about $100 million in revenue this year. And you know, along the way, I started to think about, well, what do I, what does, what do I love to do? And it started really organically. I would talk to founders, help founders. You know, we talk about recruiting. We talk about uh, influencer marketing, acquisition, paid social. Uh, we talk about uh, fundraising, you know, whatever I could be helpful with. And at some point I had this aha moment of like, oh my God, these founders are incredible. <laughs> you know, I just have, I happen to have incredible deal flow. And so and a, a lot of passion to help these founders. And I could really help them succeed with my experience. So we started to do angel investing. My partner, Herman, and I, uh, we've known each other since business school. And we did 18 angel investments. Out of those, um, in we've had seven of them 3X, two of them are 10X plus, and one of them just exited. Um, and by the way, I'm very proud to say that out of those 18 angel investments, 80% have a female or diverse founder. Nice, nice. So that was kind of the moment that you were like, wow, something is working here. My angel yeah. investments are doing well. They're exiting, they're scaling, they're having markups. And so you were like, let me kind of do this full time and actually start a full fund. Is that kind of the, the switch? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a combination of kind of vision and mission. Mm. So I think on the one hand, the vision is, you know, we want to build a generational fund. We see the opportunity. Uh, we we are two very experienced GPs that really, you know, Herman's background is as an asset manager. He deployed over a billion dollars, uh, particularly on the credit side. So he's very heavy on the finance side and I'm much more on the operations side. So I think we saw like, okay, we can do this and we can do this really well. And mm-hmm. I think there's also the mission, which is I have such heart and passion for helping early stage founders. And, you know, if you talk to any of our founders, uh, I think my biggest point of pride is when a, when a founder tells me like, you're the person, you're the investor I talk to the most. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, because you want to talk to me because I actually help. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think it's so cool whenever you're working with a founder and they actually derive value from the conversations beyond the capital. Uh, But kind of switching gears a little bit here, um, you know, starting off your VC firm must have been really hard. In fact, I wrote an article about what the experience of raising a firm is like, uh, because there's sort of, I don't want to say smoke and mirrors, that's maybe not the right way to say it, but you can go down a lot of rabbit holes, you know, trying to do this and it doesn't work and do this, or these conversations don't progress. But what was your experience like raising your fund for the first time? Did you have to join programs to help you do it? Did you have 30 millionaires in your network you could call on to invest? Like, how did you kind of go through that when you started? Well, I think the biggest, so the biggest aha moment for me, uh, again, coming from the perspective of having been a founder and having raised significant capital with venture firms was just how it's actually harder to raise a fund than raise money for a company. 
And the reason I think it is, is that when you think about being, you know, a founder and raising money for a company, you know, team, absolutely, right? It's the number one question in our red box, in our matrix. It absolutely needs to be there. But the truth is, you're also looking at the category, you're looking at the team, you're looking at the segments, you're looking at the valuation, you're looking at whether you want to invest in that country, whatever, there's, there are a lot other variables that go into the investment decision, where what I've found with uh, fundraising for a fund is, it's kind of like, who is this woman? What connections does she have? Can she get allocations? And does she have good judgment? Right? Like, it's, it's very, in the end, it's about, you know, it's blind capital, right? We are being trusted by RLPs to deploy in a way that is going to yield these outsized returns, but there's a lot of trust involved. And so I think that being a new founder, uh, being a new fund manager is it, hard, right? We we don't have, we're not rolling out of huge funds. We're not uh, sort of known entities. Um, on the other hand, I think that's part of the alpha. And so it's, it's, you have to find those believers. I think that um, the, we have done quite a few programs. Uh, we've done uh, Founders Institute, we did GPX, we did Recast, um, and I found them very helpful. I think it also really depends, and, and I'm happy, you know, if anybody wants to reach out on questions about the, the, the programs, because I think like different programs are helpful at different stages. Like I would say, you know, the the founders uh sort of it's a little bit more basic it's a little bit more the nuts and bolts of like writing your deck get it get a lawyer this is how and and i think you need that early on um whereas i think some of the other ones particularly gpx i would say is more um like advanced discussions where you will actually sit with a fundraising professional and be like okay what have you got what's your unique value proposition, who can you talk to? So I think uh, it's helpful as a fund manager, to your point, I think there's a lot of rabbit holes. Uh, and, you know, I think one of the things that's, you know, true of founders and true of fund managers is that there's a lot of vanity metrics that you can kind of dive upon, right? Like you can spend all day on Twitter and that works for some people. I mean, there have been funds that have been raised purely on Twitter relationships. Mac is a great example of that, right? Amazing. Um, for us, I think that's not the right approach. And so just being really uh, thoughtful about how you allocate your time, because I will say um, the one somebody asked me, like, what's the hardest thing about venture capital? And I would say time. Um, I had no idea just how many ways I had to split my time when I started in venture capital. Yeah, you could say that again. I mean, one day you're speaking to your fund admin, then you're speaking to a founder, then you're speaking to your LP. There's so many different facets. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it makes it exciting, but at the same time, it is time consuming as well. I, I, I always say, I just need a clone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there'll ever be another Rachel Tenbrink, so don't even try. Um, but what's what's interesting is you mentioned about the connections. You know, people didn't know your name and things of that nature. I believe it's a double-edged sword because... VC, if it if it's too clicky or network driven and depends on who you know, then it seems to reinforce 
current existing pattern recognition or certain demographics or, or people of a certain um, background, which I believe has excluded maybe the Latino community or things of that nature. But on the other side, um, you know, you have to play the game, which is you have to have a network. It, it is people refer you to an LP because they know you and things of that nature. How do you think we can have a proper conversation around around how being network driven is good, but then can also be bad for this overall space if we're trying to democratize access to dollars for the best founders? Yeah. You know, it's something I think about a lot and obviously talk to a lot of other founders and, and fund managers. And my view is that in the end, it's performance. It's about excellence. It's about being best in class. Um, I think that uh, we need to use the arguments of how we have access to underserved founders, how we have access you know, I, I I think of it as my secret sauce. I, I get to sit in rooms that others don't. I get to have conversations that with honest conversations with founders because I sat as a Latina, as a woman in front of a bunch of white guy VCs and figured out how to raise money, right? And so having that candidness, that honesty, that's actually my secret sauce. And I think what's interesting as, as diverse fund managers is that, you know, absolutely we want to support diverse founders, but also the really smart founders reach out. Why? Because they need a woman on the cap table. I mean, you know, I just literally today had a uh, conversation with a founder that is in the food space and it's like food content. It's it's more like an e-commerce food content. He doesn't have one female investor. Well, guess what? Who watches Food Network, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? So maybe it would be helpful to have that content. Um, so I think that's really interesting in that it's very, you know, icily slow, but the world is changing and the realization that diversity, and, and I mean diversity in terms of gender, ethnicity, experience, background, is hugely valuable to the success of a of a of a of a founder. So I'm cautiously optimistic, but it's very, very slow. Yeah, it really is. One of the things that I've thought about recently is the fact that people invest in you if you're a fund manager, as you mentioned. Um, you know, it's all about your brand and who you are and your experiences, your ability to judge startups, all those kinds of things. And I often think about creating a platform. People are much more willing to trust sort of platforms um, that don't rely on a single point of contact or rely on you trusting another individual. Do you know what I mean? People want fail safes. If there's a platform, if there's audited documents, if it's sort of open-ended, um, then I think people feel much more comfortable. Uh, I think of things like, um, you know, AngelList, which is an open platform and things of that nature. But how do you think about that dichotomy between LPs or limited partners investing in platforms where they don't have to necessarily rely on one person versus trusting an individual that you've known for a long time and investing in them as a person? Do you ever think about those two? Well, I think about it more as a continuum in in how um, sophisticated, how how much experience an individual has in investing. Mm. I think what you find is uh, oftentimes it's somebody who does have some capital that can start investing, starts to do angel investing uh, and realizes just how hard it is. Right. Like you and I are fund managers. We do this every day, all day. I talk, you know, I 
I get 400 pitches a month. I talk to a hundred founders a month. That's what I do every day, all day. And that's how I find probably one investment. So if you think about the time allocation and the amount of expertise and experience that I have, the network that I have, it's hard uh, to improve those odds. And the way I do it is, is through being, being really, really well educated and having a really specific matrix in how we invest. So I think that a lot of people sort of start with the angel investing and they invest in their friends, they invest in some things that, you know, sound fun and eventually start to realize just how hard it is um, to kind of get a profitable exit out of that. And so that's where you see people sort of progressing to an angel list where Perhaps there's a fund manager that's presenting the opportunity and has done the due diligence and has more expertise. And then I think a lot of them sort of evolve from there to investing in funds. So I don't think of it as an either or. I think of it more like um, an evolution. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense, actually. And speaking of, you know, finding deals across wherever they could come from, how do you do that scalably? Because I end up you know, having 20 different Google drives that are being sent my way and links here and there. And I'm trying to create like a sheet just to keep tabs of all of these things and know which one have I spoken to? Who do I need to catch up with? All those types of things. I think I've got a good system now, which I've connected, but how do you sort of find your deals and how do you kind of optimize for your time, which is the most valuable thing you have? How do you kind of make sure everything gets filtered, stored and um, sort of calibrated uh, so that you can make the right decisions? Sure. So I think one of the, the secret sauce of Red Bike Capital is that 75% of our deal flow comes from founder recommending founders. Mm-hmm. And that, again, comes from the network that I've had um, built up during my time at Y Combinator. Uh, and it's not just companies in Y Combinator, but Y Combinator founders recommending their friends. And, you know, my fundamental belief is great founders, no other great founders. Mm. Uh, You just sort of recognize the attributes in each other. So I think that the quality of the deal flow that we get through founders is really, really strong. And, you know, I try to pay it forward. I try to be very value added. uh, But a lot of the introductions that we get is just inbound through founders. Uh, But we also make sure, again, to the point about diversity and making sure that, uh, you know, we have a more diverse group of founders being funded. We pay a lot of attention to the to the inbox too. Like we have a form in our website. We get quite a few uh, emails sent through that and we review every single one of them. We make sure to understand what the business is. We track all of it. Um, and then, so that's sort of like how we source. Um, you know, we also, to the point that we were talking about, you know, I'm one of... 0.1% general partners that's Latina, right? And so I get to sit in those rooms that others don't. I get, I am part of those networks that others are not. And so, you know, when when I hear uh, a lot of VCs sort of lament that there's not enough of a pipeline of diverse founders, I'm like, I don't know where you're sitting because where I sit, I got plenty, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so we do a lot you know, we do a very deliberate uh, approach to make sure our deal flow is diversified. Um, In terms of how our process works, so as I said, about 400 companies come through that funnel. And, you know, we're very systematic in making sure uh, these, the companies that we're going to spend time on, because if there's one thing I appreciate having been a founder is like, don't waste people's time, right? And so I'm very respectful of founders' times. And, you know, it has to, you know, 
adhere with our mandate, adhere with our values, adhere with our categories that we invest in. But if it passes those sort of filters, we'll, we'll have conversations. And so initially, it's usually myself or my partner, one of us will have a call, an initial call with the founders, where we really just want to get to know, you know, what is it that you're building? What pain point are you so, are you solving? Who are you? It's very top line. It's more about the business. How do you make money? Um, so those are usually the first sort of stage one. Stage two, I would say out of those 100 calls, we probably do 10 to 15 that come to the next stage. Um, and at that point, the two of us get involved. Uh, we'll have additional calls. We'll start to do diligence. We'll talk. We have one thing that we're very lucky with is RLPs include a lot of industry experts. Uh, for example, one of our investors is the number four guy at one of the top consumer companies. Uh, we have a lot of people in finance, the guy who used to run Goldman Sachs for Latin America, um, one of the largest tech recruiters um, in the US. Uh, so it's very helpful because we do leverage our network to just get a sense of the industry, the possibilities, the competitive set. So we spend a lot of time um, at this early stage. Uh, then from there, we really go into full due diligence. And at that point, they're really a serious investment candidate. So we'll go, you know, dig through the financials. And as I said, my my partner is an ex-investment banker. So the the founders don't always love him because he's always finding the mistakes in their models. <laughs> but he'll he'll spend, you know, we do it in a very kind way. We really want to be helpful, but we spend a lot of time looking at through documents, really understanding the business. You know, what is this business? How does it make money? Can it be scalable? Um you know, is this a business that we want to invest in? Can we really help? I think that's a really important part um, to the assessment. And then eventually, you know, if we are both on board, we we go through the investment. So that's really sort of the process mm -hmm. of how Red by Capital invests in, in startups. Fantastic. Wow. I'm kind of curious now, did Rachel always want to be a VC when she was a kid? Or do you remember the first thing you wanted to be when you grew up, when you were like 10 years old or something like that? Yeah, I wanted to be PR for Coca-Cola. <laughs> wow, that's oddly specific. Why PR? Oh, I've all, I, I'm a go-getter. I've always been like, it, actually, you know, it's funny. I have to share this. So this weekend, the other thing I did is I'm trying to put more stuff in storage because my apartment is going to fall on top of me. <laughs> and um, I started to see, okay, what stuff can I put away? And I realized I have every review from every job I've held my entire life, I have copies of every, from my first job out of college at Gillette, everything, like I keep so many job memories. And I'm like, what does that <laughs> say about like how my self-worth is tied to my job, right? Oh my so I, I'm definitely a workaholic. I'm definitely somebody who's very passionate about the work. Um, and I think that, you know, how do I end up in venture capital? I think for me, it's just enabling great founders. And I think that um, we need diversity in, in the VC ecosystem and it needs to go, you know, to really, my view is that to really build sustainable long-term uh, shifts, to really make this a more equitable and frankly, more profitable uh, business. Because I do think that, you know, diverse founders can give you better outcomes we need diversity on both sides of the cap table, right? Because this isn't charity. This isn't just, well, you know, we're going to do, you know, George Floyd happened. We're going to do one 
uh, initiative. And once that's done, it's gone. That's good and good for those founders that got some money out of those programs. But in the end, we need long-term change. And the way to do that is to be a best-in-class founder, to build a best-in-class fund, and to continue to support diverse founders, to give them a fair shake. Mm. I mean, I think that's really what it boils down to. Yeah. One of the things I think about as well is if you think of the demographics of the United States, by 2050 or so, the majority of America will be actually Latin American. Yes. Yeah. So you can't have a country uh, be sustainable and be cohesive as a society if half the country looks a certain way and has all the wealth and another half of the country looks another way and has nothing. That's going to cause so like incohesion. It's going to cause social strife. So I think there has to be a better way of creating an economy that works for all. And so that, that diversity or whatever mandate that you and I are looking at it's ultimately, I think, in the best interest of society and America as a whole, because quite frankly, uh, when you have a system of a few that own everything and others that don't, it doesn't necessarily work out. And uh, I think ultimately, when people like you and the guys at Harlem Capital and McKeever succeed, I think it just creates a better country and better society overall. Uh, but I don't know if you ever think about it at a societal level um, at all. Well, you know, I think a lot about it this way. So for me, first of all, like, I think that talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not, right? And this is something that's often said. Mm. And so I also think that I'm in a very privileged position as a successful, diverse founder. Mm. And so a lot of what I think about is like, how can I make more impact? You know, I've made impact as a successful founder. I've built a great company. We employ a lot of people. I'm very proud of the work I did at Sanford. Um, You know, I'm no longer active. I have great co-founders that are rocking and rolling in that business, but what can I do? And so I I think a lot about the circularity of like great founders supporting more great founders. And I think a lot about building that bridge of people who may not have the wealth or may not have the network, but certainly have the talent and drive to build world-class businesses. And so that's where I see myself. And, And I think that it becomes a conversation about economics and, you know, the profitability of what we're doing. I think there is very positive out- economic outcomes. But again, I think there is also a societal piece to it. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. In terms of, uh, you know, thinking a, a bit more broadly around the, the VC landscape and startups and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's a very fascinating space uh, with new ideas that are coming around all the time. Have you seen any new ideas that have come by your plate and you're like, wow, that's really cool, or that's a different way of thinking of things? But when's the last time your mind was kind of blown by an idea that you didn't think about before? Uh, well, you know, I think that there's something that's true of venture capital, and I think is, you know, to, to the point of, of new ideas, I think that um, it's about finding ideas that are in the future, but not so far off in the future that they're just too early for their time. So not like flying cars or anything. Exactly. (laughs) I think that there's, there's a lot of challenges. A lot, a lot of people have invested in ideas that were just not ready. Um, So I will say last week as I was at a conference and um, we don't particularly invest in food, but I I was in a future of food uh, panel that I found very fascinating. And I think what was really interesting is we are in a world where, um, the future, you know, the demand for meat mm. is expected to 2x, yet 
people are kind of stuck at like one or 2% in alternative meats. Mm. So what do you do? And so that to me was a really interesting fact. And the fact that when you look at alternative meats so far, most of it is processed Mm. and only about 20% of what Americans consume is processed food. So like burgers and hot dogs, most of us eat like chicken breast or a steak. So it's a whole meat. Mm. And so sort of that mismatch, I I just found that really fascinating uh, in terms of where the opportunities lie. Um, you know, I think as somebody who comes from a marketing perspective and comes from from consumer, changing consumer habits is really, really hard, really, really slow, and really, really expensive. Mm-hmm. And so I think about that a lot when I think, even when we think about wellness or e-commerce adoption or payments. So even in the categories that we are investing in, uh, you know, it, it's about like, how do you drive innovation in a way that does trigger mass adoption? And so we think a lot about that uh, because otherwise it's really hard to scale. <laughs> yeah, I could talk about food processing all day. My father actually works um, at the United Nations at the World Food Program. So oh. anytime I have a conversation with him, it's like an hour about how food should be grown and how sustainable and all that kind of stuff is. Um, and it's quite interesting because, in fact, you know, we've reduced world hunger to, to about 600 million Uh, people in the world, but recently it's upticking to about 800 million and it's projected to go back up above a billion because of the recession and, you know, the wars and all that kind of stuff. So it's a bit of a precarious time right now, to be frank with you in that regard. But uh, I'm hoping that if we fund the right funders or the right founders, should I say, we can solve some of these problems. You know, we've been looking at a lot of companies and, and we think a lot about, you know, to your point, I think you started early on this interview talking about, you know, what are the shifts that we're seeing in venture capital? And I mean, two years of COVID plus war plus like the world's in a pretty messed up stage. <laughs> yeah. And I do think about, for example, you know, childcare. six million women left the workforce during COVID. Wow. How, you know, how do these women reenter the workforce? Who's going to take care of the children? How do you pay for childcare? Yeah. Uh, when you think about the financial side, when we think about buy now, pay later, mm. uh, you know, that's one area that I'm very um, cautious about. I think that if you look at who's using the buy now, pay later, it's women and minorities. Yeah. And they're very much at risk to getting, you know, their credit sort of spiraling. You out can't afford it, right? In the first place. Exactly. So, you yeah. can't afford it in the first place. And a lot of these people don't realize that they're entering into debt. They think that, oh, it's, you know, it's, I, I don't know what they're thinking, but they don't realize it. And so, you know, these are some of the categories that we're looking at as investors to say, well, what can we do to make them better? Yeah. Um, you know, the health and wellness, this is a pretty broken system in the United States. And so, um, you know, I don't think that telehealth will completely replace in person, but how can we make the system more efficient? How can we get people that simply aren't going to the doctors that should? Mm. Uh, how do we get them more help? So we think a lot about those sort of macro, you know, again, I think it's a really interesting sort of juncture in time where um, there's a lot of big stuff happening and it's not all good. <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And speaking of impact, what's your take on sort of the ESG model? Because some people are all about, yeah, this is great. Everything should be ESG focused and all that. And then others think that it's a lot of sort of greenwashing and I don't want to say wokeism and all that kind of stuff. But what's your take on sort of the ESG mandates that you see coming out now? Do you believe in them? Are they actually what they think they are? Yeah, you know, I think that, again, 
in order to have long-term impact, you have to perform as a fund. Mm-hmm. And I I think that um, I've read some interesting papers that particularly referring to diverse and minority founders where, you know, you can get lulled into this whole conversation about impact and making the world better. That's all great. But if I don't deliver returns, I'm not going to be here for fund two, fund three, or fund four. And so I think that where I can marry it, where I can make the best investment decisions that are doing good while doing well, that's what I want to do. But in the end, I'm very much returns focused uh, because I think that's how you build a best in class fund. And, And I think that there needs to be more Latinos, black and women doing this. Yeah. So I, I want to be part of that solution. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you and I can chat for hours, I'm sure, on this topic. Um, but we'll kind of wind it up here. I'm sure we'll have you back for another episode. But if there's one thing that you want to leave with the audience that listens to this, what would that lesson be? And then as a follow-up, how can people find you and share their amazing uh, ideas and startups? So, you know, I think that... Um, I think a lot about the founder journey, and I think right now it's a really challenging time to be a founder, but great companies are built. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I just leave it with a, a message of positivity of, you know, focus on your numbers, put your head down, build great businesses. Um, I think that's how you, there is still a lot of money floating around. There's a lot of dry powder. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, focus on your numbers, make sure you're doing what's right for your business in the long term. Um, and I think great businesses will be built even in these difficult times. Um, and I would say for the LPs out there, uh, you know, lip service is great, but I think we need to see real change. Um, and I think taking the time to meet the founders, I know it's, you know, I, I think one of the big challenges that I see is sort of this. I, I was talking with a large family office and, and said, you know, there is a pipeline problem, but here's the pipeline problem. The problem is there are, there, there weren't historic, a lot of diverse fund managers, right? Like between, what is it between women and minorities? I think it's less than 1% of the 413000000000000 trillion asset management. Business, yeah. right? So we haven't been there historically. If ideally, of course, they're saying, yes, we want to invest, but we want to invest in the, $100 million funds, $500 million funds. And what I'm saying is great, I'm going to get there, but I need to do fund one first. And so I think that that's where the pipeline challenges come. Mm. Uh, and it does require a little bit more work. It does require a little bit more granularity, but I think that's how you impact change and frankly drive outsized returns. There's a lot of research about how small funds, fund ones, those are the ones that do the outsized, right? Because we're hungry, we're new, <laughs> we got to do this. Uh, so if you look at Cambridge Associates, there's a lot of research around that. So that would be my message for, for the LPs. Um, and in terms of how to reach me, uh, I'm really good on Twitter and I'm really good on LinkedIn. So I would recommend those two. And you can always uh, reach out on redbycapital.com. As I said, we review every pitch. So really such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Of course. And I can definitely tell you're a marketer. Whenever I look at your LinkedIn or your Twitter, I see some amazing pictures, events that you're always going for. So you're not that hard to reach. But uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. And we have to have you back at some point. Thank you. It was really fun. Thank you. Okay. So...